Welcome to episode 124 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Pearl Brunt. Pearl describes herself as polyvocational. She's a foreign relations and management consultant with an MA in international relations and an MBA in international business. She's a vegan whole foods advocate via her club, The Twisted Spoon, which you can join. Pearl is also a community organiser, public speaker, and sometimes a political candidate. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 123 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've just found us. Hopefully these conversations are fairly timeless. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge a few more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Pearl. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well. Thank you. Good to hear. Well, thank you so much for making the time to join this series of sentientist conversations and we've talked briefly before a few twitter dms and um chat that this is a series of conversations about what i think of as the two deepest philosophical questions and the most important uh, what's real and what and who matters so epistemology and ethics if you like um i have an obvious bias because i'm trying to popularize and develop a really simple worldview called sentientism which suggests that when it comes to thinking about what's real we should take a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason and when it comes to ethics and our scope you know who and what should we care about that should be sentient beings at least every being that can suffer and flourish and experience things but i have the privilege in these conversations of talking to a dazzling variety of different people so it will be fascinating to understand your own personal philosophical journey and you know whether or not these ideas resonate with you or whether you're going to put me straight but um but before we get on to those crazily big questions how would you best introduce yourself um, so my name is Pearl Monique Holbrunt, and by trade, I have been a foreign relations consultant for years. Um, and I had my daughter about 10 years ago. I uh, turned to veganism. I learned a lot of stuff, and uh, we became vegan. And the more I got into it, originally it was because of the environment, food systems, and health, and, and then particularly the way animals are treated. Um, the more it became a passion of mine to teach other people what I've learned and not just that things are bad, but also that this is a terrible way to live our lives and there's a better way to do that. Let's do that better. Yeah. So there's some hope there too. There's a big problem, but some hope. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I think that the theme will run through this too, because um, I was fascinated. I found your story through the episode you did with our hen house and I was lucky enough to be a guest there a while back too and both Jasmine and Marianne have been guests on sentientist conversations too so we have a sort of podcast network overlap um, but one of the things that fascinated me about your story that we can dig into later is that there's lots of conversations about how to make the world a better place institutional change individual change and so on but it seems to me that you've pulled lots of those different levers both you know individually um, in your activism, in your professional work, but even on the political stage as well, running for office. So it'd be interesting to explore, you know, some of those ideas about making that better future in the final question that we go on to cover. Yes. I mean, I try. 
Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing array of work. So let's let's start with that first big question, what's real? So for many of my guests, this is a, a story about whether they grew up originally in maybe a more religious, spiritual, uh, mystically minded uh, society, context and family, or one that was maybe more atheistic or naturalistic or scientifically minded or some sort of blend of both um, in the early days and how that side of their worldview has changed over time, if it has. So you can wind the clock back as far as you like to tell that story, but it would be fascinating to understand your sort of epistemological journey on how you think about those big questions. So I grew up in America, in Kansas, in the middle of nowhere. Um, my father was from North Carolina, very Southern, and it was really a traditional African-American household. So, um, and we were very, very poor. And I think there's this real connection between people clinging to religion and poverty, right? Like there's just, you don't have anything. And so when you get anything, you're really grateful for it and you're constantly asking. And so my relationship with the church was that, um, you know, everyone goes to church on Sunday. It was the thing that you did. And it wasn't just church. It was you got dressed up in your Sunday best. You know, I think today, church, people are a lot more casual in a lot of places. You wear your jeans, you come, you worship, that kind of thing. But when I was growing up, it was very much you have your tights on as a little girl, your fancy shoes, your ribbon, your hair and the bow. It was like a big fashion show almost going to church. A real you know, event. And also it was the kind of churches where we had um, dinner afterwards because we stayed there all day long. And so they would have to feed you and everyone, it would be like a potluck thing all of the time. And it was really, really interesting because there was also this disparity between um, what was taught on Sunday and kind of what people practiced throughout the week, right? Um, so there was uh, and again, I think this really is um, goes hand in hand with poverty. So during the week, there was a lot of hard times. And so there was a lot of people who would drink and carry on and do different things. But they'd always be right back in the church on Sunday. They'd be at the club on Saturday. So from a very early age, I kind of got the impression that it was a religion and not really a lifestyle, right? Like, almost lip service, if you will. And my mom, and not to mention that there are some pretty unsavory things that happen from the leadership of the church that didn't treat people very well. And we moved around a tremendous amount. I was very poor. And so we were often um, in homeless shelters or having to stay with other people. So we never really had a solid community. So I ended up experiencing lots of different churches. And, and again, Again, a lot of churches showed us a lot of charity throughout my childhood, whether it was feeding us. Um, you know, you have churches, a lot of churches have pantries, and so they let you come and, and get groceries if you don't have food, or uh, sometimes churches will help you pay your utility bills or different funding like that. So we were always involved with the church. But I, um, I can't say I ever felt particularly spiritual at that time, but I, I certainly was raised in the church. And I think it's really interesting because as an adult, I feel much more spiritual and less religious. Yeah, interesting balance. Yeah. And, and as a child, um, you didn't necessarily feel spiritual. So it sounds like you didn't feel a sort of an emotional connection to what was going on. But did you... I guess, did you believe the things they were telling you? You assumed there was a God and heaven and hell and 
the words of the Bible and so on, or, or was it was it purely a sort of community um, I think thing? As and a event child, and a... I struggled. I don't know. I was always a very intellectual person, like even as a kid, and I was very rigid. And if it didn't make sense to me. I, I had a problem with it, right? I wasn't the kid that you can lie to and be like, Santa Claus isn't going to come if you don't go to bed right now. I'm like, well, was he really going to come? Like, let's look at it. Like, let's look at yeah, this. Yeah. Like, yeah. what are the odds, right? <laughs> and so, um, and also, you know, just going to so many different churches. And my mom, whilst she was, I would say she was a religion-esque person, she also struggled with the church a lot and in fact we intentionally as uh, she had us visit different types of churches to get a feel for it and she was adamant that my brother and I were going to decide our own faith right and she felt that as a mom it was her duty to introduce us um to it and so she taught us all the things that she was taught but she also made sure that we got a wide variety of education when it comes to different philosophies and things and being really open-minded about it but again I, I must say that there was just a lot of corruption in some of the churches like the eternal building fund that you never quite have enough money for the building fund but the pastor just got a brand new car kind of thing um, yeah. that went on and um also there is a lot i remember i went to a church with my dad once and they said literally they said that don't forget to get the latecomers because you have to pay to pray so it's things like that that really yeah. put me off of the religion. And I remember I actually had a huge fight with my dad about this because I was like, that's just wrong. You know, in fact, like if you actually read the Bible, and again, there seemed to be really um, a disparity between what the Bible said, like, especially if you just focus on the New Testament, because, you know, again, as an adult, when I actually read through the properly there's a lot of disparities all over it right but yeah. in particular when people call themselves christians and they lead a church based on doing what jesus said to do but in fact they're doing the exact opposite of, of what that is because jesus was all about love and forgiveness and loving other people even though they're wrong he didn't just go and say oh, i'm just gonna i mean that was kind of the thing that was supposed to be special about jesus right is that yeah. he opened it up for everyone and it wasn't just about loving the people that already agreed with you and did everything that you thought they were going to do. He yeah. said, love God and love your neighbors. And it was so supposed to be more universal. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and again, like open it up to non-Jewish people as well. Right. Like Jesus was Jewish. Like it's a big thing, but you know, people focus on the things that are most convenient when um, they, they teach the gospel. And, and also as an adult, I, I personally think it's really interesting the way that the Christian religion has been given to um, African-Americans. And you look throughout um you know, history of slavery and, and how our language and everything was taken from the people that came over and then we it was replaced with this. So it's it's a long conversation. But in short, I don't think that I really felt um I never felt religious. I did feel like because uh, we had a lot of hard times and I did feel a presence sometimes like I wasn't alone yeah. um 
and some of the roughest parts, even as a child. So that's interesting. But at the same time, like even when I would say my prayers, I would pray to God. And I guess it was more of an agnostic view for many years. Like, you know, I'm sure there's a God out there. I'm not quite sure about what they're teaching me now, but um, certainly I, I believe, and I still believe there's something higher than myself. I've had many experiences that I can't fully explain, but they were very real to me. Um, But how that fits in with the religion side of things, I'm not sure. Yeah, thank you. That's fascinating. And and the point you made about the history of slavery and colonialism and the role of Christianity within that, I, I find that fascinating because it seems to me that there are certain aspects of you know, colonial practices that have been rightly associated with colonialism and are therefore seen in quite a negative light today because of what they were part of. But it seems interesting that Christianity and other aspects of religion seem to have escaped that association somehow. So they still have an enormous sort of resonance within many of the communities that were victims of colonialism, even though actually it was one of the primary tools of colonialism itself. I find that sort of intriguing, um, fascinating. But um, Right? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So it's it's really it it has such a lasting effect. And I saw this meme the other day where it said, um, "Give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. Give a man a religion, and he'll die praying for fish." (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do, I do think there is something to this. Um, it's the idea that it doesn't matter what happens to you on this earthly plane, because as long as you do the right thing and do what you're told and, you know, by the religious elders or, you know, as long as you do what is expected of you, no matter how hard your life gets, there's a reward in heaven and that's forever. And you're going to have mansions and you're going to be beautiful and you're just like going to be recreated and it's going to be fantastic, right? That's very alluring for people who are at the very bottom of the rung and really have nothing else to look forward to. And it only takes a few generations before people don't remember what freedom was like and they don't know anyone who does remember that um there was a lot that went into um colonialism and slavery in particular that is still affecting black communities in america um, in terms of the way the families are structured and even 1960s, 70s, 80s, about the way that help is given. So for instance, if you are a single Black woman, you're eligible for benefits. If you have a man living in your home, even if you're not married, then you're not. So, so many people don't actually get married and don't form formal family bonds because then they won't have the assistance they need to survive. And so it's a lot of things like that. So when you start talking about, and it's hard to separate all of these issues, but when you start talking about why policies are important and like, what are we supporting and what are we really saying and what are we really doing and acknowledging that, you know, for generations we have conditioned a whole group of people in a certain way, limiting their options and possibilities. And, um, you know, going back at religion played a big part of that, because again, it does, you know what, 
everyone's wrong, but you know, God loves us and he's going to take care of us. And even if we don't survive now or get what we need now, we're going to have it in heaven. And a lot of things, a lot of really bad things have been allowed to happen because of that principle of believing that, you know, it'll work out in the end, even if the end is in the afterlife. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's a tricky mix because, as, as you said, you know, there are core messages in Christianity, but also most of the other world religions that are really strong, right? It's about a universal compassion and it's about love and it's about treating other people as, you know, either we or they want to be treated. There's some really powerful strong ethics there and i'd argue that those sort of ethical drives actually predate most of the religions you know these aren't things that religions came up with they're things that religions picked up and and developed because ultimately those things probably have their roots in our evolutionary past and i think even non-human animals have some sort of proto religion you know non-human animals feel compassion for their young and for each other too so i think there's deeper roots but so there's that there's a positive core that flows through many of those religions but then um, there are challenges too, because often that uh, compassion is made, as you say, sort of conditional. You know, you have to follow these rules. Uh, it can be constrained in certain ways. You know, only the in-group gets to count and the out-group, you know, might even get sent to hell or burn for eternity. So there's, you, you start with the compassion stuff and that ticks the box for me. But then you see these other aspects which seem to warp it and take it off in different directions. And as you say, you know, justifying suffering in this world for the promise of another world that I don't think exists. And that can lead you in some difficult ways or, or the idea that there's some supervening overall sort of higher goal that is more important than us lowly suffering beings. And as soon as you have some sort of higher superordinate goal, it becomes remarkably easy to justify causing suffering and so on. So, so there's problems there as well, but it's interesting how people respond to that because some people will take that sort of sceptical mindset it sounds like you had as a child and look at the inconsistencies and the problems and turn away from it because of evidence and reason. Others will look at the ethical problems that you know you may, might have seen in some of those churches um, or on a broader scale and turn away for that reason. Um, some people will turn away completely and I've just become a sort of completely boring sort of naturalistic atheist and left it there. Other people will actually stay religious, but they'll say, look, what's happened here is that the human institutions and often the powerful men that happen to run these religions have sort of warped and done what us humans do and taken things in bad directions. But the core is still strong. So they'll hold on to a religious worldview that does still think that there is a benevolent, omniscient, omnipotent God out there and the messages of universal compassion still hold true. So they'll almost strip the human difficulties out of religion and come back to a sort of purer version that they hold on to others will follow the path it sounds like you have where you've sort of moved away from religion and you were lucky to have parents that you know were, were open-minded about there are other ways of thinking despite the fight with your dad but you've moved into something that you've described as spiritual but not religious and you mentioned already that there you know there are things you've experienced or that leads you to believe maybe there's something beyond just the normal natural physical world. Could can you say a little bit more about how that works and what it means for you? Yes. Yeah. I, before we move on, I do want to touch back about what you said about compassion, and I think yeah. that sorry, it I just is, gave a bit of a lecture. So. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think that this is the problem. I think it's um, 
vocabulary issues and how people are defining people and how you, because people are always capable of compassion, you know, like the whole thing they say and an ethical code, you know, honor among thieves kind of, you know, so whatever your code is, like people still have one and people who don't have one, even if they don't match the normal code of ethics usually they still have some sort of code that they live by right and I think the definition is to whom does that get applied and and that's the issue um because people don't apply it universally people don't just kind of say you know and again like and you see it all of the time like the way that people treat children sometimes is atrocious like they're second class citizens you're a child so you don't have a say you don't need to be things don't need to be explained to you you know you're just do as you're told kind of thing you know we see this all over or you know whatever your title is um, at your job you know somehow gives you more importance and so your feelings and your thoughts don't matter as much as someone else and we see all over our society, how we continuously reshuffle and reorder and have some sort of hierarchy. And so it's male versus female or old versus young or, you know, all sorts of ways. And I think that, you know, the trick is going to be to broadening that definition of whom compassion should be applied to. And if we can just like widen that to everyone, I think we'll be okay. Absolutely. And that's the core of the second question we'll come on to come on to next. Did you want to say any more about this sort of spirituality and what that means to your understanding of the world? Sure. So I have I have a couple. I'm going to give you two examples. Yeah. So when I'm going to give you three examples, because it's actually really interesting. And I, I don't talk about this often because it just doesn't come up. You know, you talk about coffee and and what are you going to do tomorrow at the gym, but not yeah, yeah. Um, really getting into spiritual conversations. And again, it's one of those touchy subjects because, um, you know, there are a lot of people that feel so very strongly about religion and it's really hard for them to have conversations like this right yeah um and so I don't but one of the times when I was in grad school I moved to Paris and I did two I spent two years in Paris and I don't know why but from the moment I moved into my first apartment, I would always go up the stairs in the dark. And it was one of those apartment buildings and it's very common in Paris, but you know, you have a hallway button and you push it and the light stays on for a certain amount of time. That usually is plenty of time to give people to open the door. I just like would practice going upstairs in the dark. And I just did that for two years. Even when I moved to the new place, I did that for two years. And I don't know. It's just a thing that I did. I just did it. It was weird. I did it. And then when I moved, I was living in the Bastille area, um, right off of Bastille, actually, one of the, the smaller roads. And I was hanging out with a friend and she wanted to stay up till five o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, girl, I will see you later. I live around the corner. I'm going home at like two o'clock in the morning. And um, so I, I was going to walk home by myself. It was just around the corner and the main street was really busy. It was very lively. There are a lot of people there. And all of a sudden I had a strong sense of danger, but it wasn't just like, I just felt like it was just danger. I just felt danger. And I also felt a very specific location. Like it was behind me and to the right. And it just felt like 
there's danger here. And I, um, but I also felt like I shouldn't turn around. And it was just, it was just so bizarre. I just, and so I kept walking and I got increasingly scared and, you know, I kind of like did the thing where you had a bit of a look. I didn't see anyone in particular. So I got to my street, which is then dark because it's a side street. I got to my street and um, I go down the, the road, but it was really weird. There was a row of cars that were parked and there was a school that was directly opposite of um, where I lived. And I lived in one of those places where you have a courtyard and then you have several buildings. Um, and then each building has a coded lock that you have to get into. And so I went around like this white van and it's funny because as a young woman I would never go by a van like it's just the thing you just don't walk by vans as a as a young woman but I kind of like snaked my way around these cars and by the school and then I and I just ran and at this point I still hadn't actually seen anyone I was just terrified at this point and so I ran into the first building and I turned around and I I hid and I ducked my head out and sure enough there was a guy that was following me and he was still being very casual and so but he got stuck because of the way that I I snaked around the cars he got stuck behind the barrier of the school and so he had to walk all the way down. And so when he kind of passed one point, I ran to my um, my door. I went up the stairs in the dark. I got up to the second floor and I looked again. And sure enough, the same guy had actually followed me into the courtyard and he was in the courtyard and he was looking for lights. And there was someone else that had a light on. And he was like, he just stood there for like 15 minutes. And I called the police, like he stood there for like 15 minutes. Like, so again, it's one of those things, like I have zero explanation for that. Yeah. None whatsoever. But I know, like, I felt that there was danger. I felt that there was a very specific point of danger. You know, I felt like I was being led very specifically through this route that I would not normally take. And also there was definitely a guy in my courtyard that was following me home that night. So let me tell you about the other experiences yeah. and then I'll tell you the conclusion that I've drawn yeah. after after these years. I've had a couple of like really strong experiences like that, that I can't explain. Another one is when I was pregnant with my second daughter and I went into labor three months early and I was, um, and I just had a, a baby the year before they're 13 months apart. And I was like, I'm not in labor. Like this is, I'm like, it's way too early. Wow. Um, but I, I was, I was in labor. And when I went to the hospital um, and I was, my daughter was born in England actually. And when I went to the hospital, they didn't have a room for a premature baby that small in the local hospitals. And so I had to go to Leeds, which was about an hour and a half to two hour drive away. And so they sent me wow. in an ambulance with a nurse and, um, she was constantly giving me some, like every 15 minutes I had to take these tabs to stop the labor because obviously if I have like a 27 week old, she was 26 weeks at the time I was in the hospital for another week before I had her, but, um, in the ambulance that would not have worked out very well. Um, but as it happens, um, we were like 
on the road to Leeds and then the ambulance pulls over in the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, what's going on? And then you hear, and the ambulance had broken down. No joke. And I was just like, but it's amazing because I literally just felt like everything was going to be fine and not to worry. It genuinely felt like someone was sat there with me and saying, it's going to be fine. And at that point, I and I had no worries, no anxiety. What's, I just felt like it was going to be fine. Wow. And in fact, when we got to Leeds, um, they, and you know, Leeds is one of the premier places, Nikki's, right? It was like, what, like literally the best place that I could be. And one of the things that they had going on was, um, a mercury thing. So ladies who have seizures go on this medicine and they also often have premature babies. And they noticed a strong correlation that when they take the medicine that helps stop their seizures, their premature babies also have less problems. And a lot of the problems occur with prematurity is actually because like the brain is so soft and not really quite ready to have all of the pressure outside of the womb. So you have brain bleeds and these brain bleeds are what actually cause a lot of physical and mental issues with premature babies. Oh, I see. Whereas in the notice- womb, they've got the the sort of supporting pressure of the fluids and so yes absolutely and so um but they noticed that there's a strong correlation at the time and I don't know if they figured it out yet because it's like 10 years ago but at the time they noticed that there was a strong correlation um that the ladies who were on this anti-seizure medicine their premature babies also had less problems and so they're running a trial that I was able to get on. And so I had that trial for Sophie and, you know, there was a tiny little spot of a a bleed when she um, was born in the first couple of days, but otherwise she came out perfectly, perfectly fine, you know? And so I really feel like, you know, being, I was in the right place at the right time. Like I kind of got there in in a weird way. Um, But really it's, it's uncanny. I think, you know, intellectually, you know, being terrified that I'm having this baby early and then the ambulance breaking down would have um, stressed me out to at least, but I genuinely just felt completely covered and protected and okay. And, and, and it did, and it, it worked out okay. And so that was my, my second experience. And my third experience, um, was also to do with Sophie. So I, after a couple of months, we finally got to take Sophie home um, from the hospital. And part of it, you have to have like a prove it night where you stay the night um, in the hospital, in the NICU, and you kind of show that you can give the baby all the medicines and do all of the things um, and you're ready to take them home. Um, Because also I was kind of asking to bring her home early because I was so sick of the hospital. And I also had a one-year-old baby at home. And so spending a lot of time there. I was like, I promise I could take care of her now. Just like, let me have her. And so we had, um, like we had the whole thing planned. We were so excited. We, um, cause you get, it's like a little hotel room in there actually, where you get to bring the baby in, but you have your TV and like a full size bed. And we had a bunch of snacks and things and we we're ready to like spend the night and have, like have the sleepover and bring our baby home. 
And my daughter was staying with my aunt who flew over from the States. Um, when Sophie was in the hospital, I called her one day and I was like, I really need help. And so she flew over and she stayed with me um, for a couple of months until we brought Sophie home and everything was settled. Um, so she was watching my one-year-old, but she'd been watching my one-year-old for weeks and weeks while I was in the hospital. Um, but I just felt like, just like deep in my gut, I felt unsettled like just really unsettled and I couldn't explain it and I was like and I said can I please just bring my my other daughter here and they didn't want her to come in because she's a snotty little kid that has germs right <laughs> around yeah. other you know NICU babies and so they're like no you can't and I was like but I feel and so I was like are you sure and it was like 10 o'clock at night I was like are you sure I was like I really gotta go home like I just like I was antsy and just so completely unsettled and I couldn't tell you why and I just really felt like my kid was not okay I was like I've got to go home I've got to go home I've got to go home and they said you know if you really want to you can come and do this another day I was like no I want to take my baby home too tomorrow yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. And so they said, okay, why don't you go home and check on your kid and come back, right? And I said, okay, I was like, Pete, we have to go. Pete's my husband. I was like, Pete, we, ha we have to go. And so, um, so we go back and it's only like a 15 minute drive from the hospital um, at this point. So we, we go back to the house, you know, I'm like still feeling like just sick, like, you know, like that in your pit of your stomach, you're nauseous and you're just like queasy and just really just feel disgusting. And so I, I go back and I, I check on my baby mats watching TV. I go upstairs, sound asleep, perfectly fine. And like, you know, I wake her up, it's like 10 o'clock at night, but like I wake her up and I'm like, are you okay? Like what's going like, you know, like checking her all over. Yeah. She's fine. And so I was like, okay. And so Pete's like, what do you want to do? Because I still felt like really gross. And so I, I went and I checked all of like the doors. I checked the electrical sockets. I was like, I don't know the cause of this feeling. I don't feel, I don't feel safe. I don't feel comfortable. I, I just, I, I couldn't shake it. Something's wrong. And but, so yeah. like something is very wrong and I can't, I, you know, and I, like, I was like, I was, I felt like I needed to come home. I'm at home and everything feels fine. And I just couldn't shake it. And so Pete's like, you know, we kind of have to either we're going back to the hospital tonight or we're not. And so at this point, it's like midnight and it's like pitch black and um, it's raining. We go home, like we go back to the hospital on the way to the hospital, like three seconds after we leave our house and we start to get on the motorway. There's this young woman walking on the street on the motorway, not even like on the grass of the motorway. She's just walking on the motorway in the dark, in the rain with her shoes off and she's super drunk. And so I'm like, pull over Pete. And so Pete pulls over and she's like, oh, and she starts again. She's like, oh, I thought you're my boyfriend. I just had a big fight with him. I'm going home. And we're like, love can we please take you home? And she's like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And I was like, no, I, like, you don't understand how incredibly dangerous this is. Like you're going towards a major roundabout and it's dark and it's raining and you're not even walking on the grass. Like I you really, can we please take you home? And she's like, no, 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 no. And so she wouldn't get in the car. And so I was like, okay, Pete, so we're going to drive behind her with our brights on. <laughs> 
very slowly until this lady gets home. An escort. And so we do this for like half a mile before she realizes we're not going anywhere. And she goes, are you guys really going to do this? And she was really drunk and she was British. So she didn't have a Californian accent. I don't know why I'm doing that accent. (laughs) But she's like, I just, I was like, yes, we really, really are. This is like horrendously dangerous, right? She gets in the car and the second this lady gets in the car, I feel fine. Like the second she gets in the car, that feeling of being uncomfortable and just, it was, and like, and then like, I just, I just felt like, and again, I don't have any like definitive, any, it's just a feeling, but it felt like that's why. And again, like I had to go home in order to be on the road. (laughs) But it wasn't your daughter. And so But it wasn't my daughter, but I had to go home. And like, probably that was the only thing that was going to get me to leave the hospital, right? So <laughs> it's just, how do you yeah, explain wow. those things? And I don't have an explanation for those things. I genuinely don't. But I do know that um, they happened to me. I do know that the feelings were very well. And I also know that there isn't any other explanation that fits into the natural model that would explain it. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And some people will, so uh, this sentientism idea is naturalistic, so it's about evidence and reason. So some people would listen to that story and say, okay, that doesn't count as evidence because evidence is just, you know, scientific tests or randomized control trials. I'm like, no, 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 that's evidence too, right? And you might think about how to weight it or are there other alternatives or so on, but what you experienced is, is evidence in its own right. So, you know, who knows? And and where right. is- and then it's very sub- how people experience things and like yeah. I don't know and so it's one of those things where you know when you say is there a god that's omniscient and omnipotent and loves everyone in the world is there someone bigger than myself that clearly loves me? I think so for sure. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I know that sounds very selfish. I can't speak. I can't answer the questions as to why horrible things happen to other people and, you know, why other people pray all of the time and don't have the answers answered or, you know, it's, there's a, so much to it that it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't add up, you know, rationally. And also the kind of God that I would want to worship and love wouldn't behave in that way. So, but then I come back to my very personal experiences and, you know, it is what it is. And I I think that, um, you know, whenever and I do I I still I still pray and I I thank God and I'm very grateful for all that I have and in terms of um and actually the conclusion I came to about Jesus was I actually like the things that he said that people should be doing to each other right so Jesus as a God Jesus as someone who um had a lot of fantastic things to say about who we should be as people and and again and about loving loving god and i think that for a lot of people and again i i don't i don't know why my dad is like super religious these days and he has never had any of the types of experiences that i've had yeah right like never has experienced anything similar to that at all 
I don't know. I mean, and he's the one that goes to church every single Sunday and gives every single week and month and is fervent. It's fascinating. I don't know. And I, I don't have an answer to that. I just know what I've experienced and also what feels right to me. And I remember one time I was, because um, there was one time around that same time, I think we were pretty active in church and my husband wasn't raised atheist. His dad was an atheist and his um, mom was a Christmas Catholic that just kind of went on Christmas yeah. and Easter, right? And otherwise never bothered with it. Um, and when he, we met in Paris, he was, a, he studied abroad in Paris as well. And so we met in Paris and he listened to Christian rock radio and became Christian like oh, wow. randomly and um, asked his parents to send him a Bible. And again, he was like really keen and all that stuff that Jesus said, right? Uh, but also people who really like fall in love with the things that Jesus said have a lot of reconciling to do with the, the Old Testament, right? And, oh, yeah. and also after Jesus, like all of the stuff after Jesus too, like it's a lot to kind of put together and to deal with. And he's also a very intellectual person. And so there was this period of time where we were really exploring it and like, what is our faith and, you know, who we are as individuals and, you know, where, where do we fit into this religious scope and, and realm. And, you know, we then found a church that we super loved. And I mean, like I would still go back now and it felt a bit uncomfortable because I don't think that maybe Christian is the right term to describe myself these days and it feels like a betrayal because like you grew up Christian right like it's like it's a big thing it's like saying actually there's a lot of stuff that intellectually and even like in my heart that just doesn't add up and so it's really easy to say that I'm not a religious person and then I'm like and but I have these spiritual things but like to then like outwardly be like I'm not a Christian anymore and it's yeah. like, I don't want to say too loudly because like there's a lot of people that would just like my dad for instance right and then it's like let's just not have those conversations it's fine we don't need to have those conversations but I would still go back to this church because all of the things that Jesus said to do like feed people and love people is what they did like every Sunday you had a little bit of a sermon but you just kind of praised and then you went out and you literally would like bring sandwiches to homeless people and they were the first people in the area to set up a food bank and they were the first people when other people were like oh we should do food banks too they're like great do the food banks we're going to set up other programs to help people like and the whole existence was just loving up on people and I was totally down for that and if I, I found somewhere that was doing that again I would totally be down for that again but um yeah, I think I digress at this point. Yeah, now that's a fascinating journey. Thank you very much. And through these conversations, I guess the next question we come on to is about ethics and what and who matters. And the two link in really interesting ways. And one of the th themes that's come through from the conversations I've had is this sense that with a more established institutional formal religion, maybe there's a bit more of a risk that the ethics get warped in one way or the other. Whereas I think in maybe a broader sense of the spiritual or a, set, a religious sense that is more grounded in a universal compassion, but doesn't have a lot of the other formality in it, um, has less risk of that ethical warping and can be more generously compassionate. I don't know if that's really holds true. 
you know, academically, but it seems that way. It seems that when you've got a, a very old book with a formal list of rules and an institution that's been around for hundreds or thousands of years with social norms defined a long time ago, you know, that seems to drift away very often from the universal compassion that you might get through a sort of simple reading of, you know, Jesus's life, for example. Although having said that, you know, even Jesus talks about hell and, you know, eternal torment for people who uh, went the, took the wrong path as well. But So I, I think it really depends on your view of what is human nature. Yeah. Right. And I think that one of the biggest reasons why there is so much, um, like you said, a warping of the ethical code is because there's so much opportunity to do so within those institutions, right? Um, I just read that in the Amish communities, as many as one in four girls are sexually molested. And, wow. and again, it's because of this concept. And, and again, you know, it's not everyone that's like this, but then you have this, um, they were in this particularly talking about how um, this one reverend said that he had to be with people on their wedding nights to teach them what to do. And when you're raised to, um, you know, bow to religious authority, but when you're raised to bow to any authority, right? So it's not just religious authority because it could be a parent that does this. It could be school teachers or anyone in a position of authority of you. If you're raised in a way that you have to accept what they say and you're not supposed to think about it, you're just supposed to do it, that creates a problem. And that's why, you know, again, like, when you think about like what is human nature you know when you have different cultural studies so you know by trade I was a foreign relations consultant and so I did a lot of studies into um you know the formation of culture and how people interact with each other and again there are some studies where if you put people into a room together just like a hundred strangers into the room together and you have a couple of minorities, they will migrate to each other, you know, or, um, again, like if it's all men and like three women, the three women will like yeah. find each other in the room. And like, so, and I think there is definitely something about like wanting to be closer to people that are similar to yourself. Yeah, but then I think that makes it really easy the when like when you group it and then like, but also we're better, <laughs> you know, or you know, this is the group that I need to protect, or it's okay for a XYZ because we're ABC, right? And then that's when you start to get all of these warping of ethics and like you start creating these new rules and these sub rules and well, it's okay. Or if something, someone lets it slide, then, you know, the group mentality, honestly, my biggest fear is like people in mass. Like it's amazing what people will do to each other in group situations when individuals don't feel like they have responsibility for their actions because there's an authority that told them to do it. Yeah. Agreed. Terrifying. And that's a that it's a serious risk, and it's a nice lead into the second question about what matters and who gets to matter. Because as you said already, almost everybody has some ethical code. Almost everybody cares to some degree. Of course, there are you know clinical psychopaths who 
can't feel empathy at all, but that's pretty rare. You know, most humans, and I'd argue most non-humans, have at least some degree of compassion for family or friends or the in-group. The question is, how far does that compassion go? And, and who else warrants that compassion? And do, you know, concepts like group or sex or race or which football team you support or which species you are block that compassion extending out? So it'll be interesting to know your story about how you've thought about who gets to matter both you know within the human species across those different groups but critically the journey towards taking non-human animal ethics seriously uh, i know it's a story you've told elsewhere but um and 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 i i guess also you know where are you now you know how do you set that boundary of moral consideration if you do set a boundary right so i think um growing up for sure it was like family matters like you you know you you do for family like family has like that's the first rung of compassion my mom even though we had very little also was a very generous person and so uh she helped anyone that she could whenever she was able to um and so i kind of grew up in the if you have something you should share it kind of mentality um so people in general have always been on that list and I don't know that anyone has ever not been on that list unless you pissed me off but most of the time <laughs> I was gonna say yeah yeah, yeah. no but it, it takes a, it takes an incredible amount to get me to that point um you know I I don't deal with toxic people but other than that um but you've proven to be toxic to me. Um, even if other people have stories, it's my personal experiences that I take into account. So people have always been on that list for me. Um, and I think that moving to non-people, and, and again, you know, I, I actually, I had a full scholarship to the United States Marine Corps, which got me, um, through uh, some college and I didn't go into the military in the end, but I did come away with a, a strong sense of um, nationalism. And again, it's almost like Christianity in so many ways where the founding principles I'm super down with, like even though in practice that hasn't happened, right? The idea that everyone's created equal and everyone should have an opportunity to live a, a decent life. I am in love with that concept and that idea. And I wish we could apply that to at least let's start with our own country, right? And that we know that that isn't actually happening, but the founding principles is, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so I think that, um, Again, just like this sense of, you know, justice and equality um, where, wherever I can. If so if I saw something that seemed unjust or unfair to me, I think I would devote more compassion towards that or towards those people than just the average kind of passing. Like I would go out of my way to try to make a difference in, in that arena. And when I... Uh, Really, it was very, very late in, in the day for me. Um, I'm approaching for I'll be 40 this year. And so Happy it was about for when it comes. 10 years ago. I was 20. <laughs> Thank you. So it was about 10 years ago um, when I actually started thinking about our food systems. And I, I just had, I read this book. I wanted to wean my baby and I uh, wanted to make, 
baby food for her. I didn't know how, and uh, my mom had passed by this time. So I just do what I always did. I bought a bunch of books and one of them happened to be about veganism. And I was completely floored um, that we were cutting down forests to support the meat industry. I was like, we're cutting down forests? Like there's global warming. Like we're cutting, we're cutting down trees so that people can have a steak. That fundamentally just seemed wrong. And again, as a highly intellectual person, I was like, that doesn't make sense. We, we can't do this anymore um, just for a steak, right? Um, I also, I think one of the other passages that really caught my attention was that uh, about dairy was that, um, you know, it's meant to turn a baby calf into like a 2000 pound cow. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, um, but no, it's it was one of those things. And I, I come to realize that you have to ease people into these conversations and prepare them. You can't just say facts because their brain is not prepared for the atrocities that's committed so that they can have what they have on their plate. And, you know, and again, it's, it's one of those things where at first I was like, okay, how do you get off this roller coaster? The first thing I thought of, like, let's just not buy or participate financially. I'm a huge, huge believer in the dollar vote. Yeah. Um, but then after that, I really, as I got more into veganism um, through education and a whole lot of YouTubing, way more YouTubing than I should have had, but where else were you going to get this information, right? Like they don't teach you this in school. Like at that time, I had a bachelor's degree in political science, a master's degree in international relations and diplomacy, and an MBA in international business. Yeah. I felt so stupid. Like, how could I be so ignorant? Like, you know, and again, like up until that point, I felt like I was an educated woman, right? But how could I be so ignorant of the very basic necessities of like eating and what actually goes into that and what's going into my food and how that affects my health and the environment? And I'm still deeply ashamed that I was so ignorant. Um, but it, I think it's intentional, you know, we're not going to go into that conversation, but I do think it's intentional that people aren't taught these things are, or made aware of what's actually happening um, and what the cost of that meat on our plate actually is, because it's just not the, the dollars that you paid for, right? Yeah. Um, but the more I, the more documentaries I watched and the more I read, um, the more I realized that it was unbelievably cruel. And as someone who lived her life to be a kind person, it just didn't make sense. And also, so again, if you walk down the street and you kick someone's dog, you can get in trouble for that. But yet you can torture livestock and do all sorts of completely inhumane things to other animals so like the whole it's it's just like this whole crazy distorted worldview that you have that you're taught of like happy animals on a farm and this is their purpose and you just don't think about it and as a child I resisted like eating meat and I don't remember when I just kind of gave up I remember being you know five six seven years old and my mom would have to like hide the meat in my food because I just didn't I couldn't like veins bones fat any of it like grossed me out and at some point when she because and again like parents are tall like if you don't eat meat you're gonna your kids aren't gonna grow well 
right? So it was um, for me starting to actually see how animals are treated and just so, so many facts like they get more antibiotics than people. And then we have, like, even if you think about just the effects that industrial farming has on humans in terms of their health and the environment, like regardless of if you think that animals are worthy of your compassion, just like the, the fact that we have superbugs now that our people have literally died because of these farming practices, because the antibiotics that are constantly used have created superbugs. And so then people contracted the disease and then they can't be cured with antibiotics that should have helped them. You know, like there are so many of these things that are conveniently overlooked. I think it's amazing. And I, I, I agree, even if from a completely selfish human perspective, you know, anthropocentric, where you just do not care about non-human animals at all. I think the argument for veganism is still absolutely overwhelming you know land use water use emissions pollution zoonotic disease antimicrobial resistance you know health the just the list goes on and on and on but and i guess that's part of the frustration in um these spaces is and it can feel like there's a bit of a parallel in the religion supernatural world as well because in both instances it can feel like look the facts are re pretty clear but the social norms are so powerful that hold you in established patterns. So there's that inertia behind the social norms. And often, as you've said, you know, that can be vent vested interests too, right? Because there are powerful people and powerful organizations who would love to keep it just as it is and keep growing it too. So, Absolutely. I also think that um, realizing that you're kind of caught in a trap and understanding how to get out of it is, are two completely different things, right? Yes. And yeah. um, you know, when they, the saying is, if you know better, you have to do better. But knowing that you should do better and having no idea how to do better uh, keeps you doing the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that's a beautiful segue maybe onto our final question about how can we make a better future? Because as you've just laid out, you know, facts aren't enough. Yeah, evidence isn't enough. Um uh, it's, and there's this enormous power behind these social norms that keep us trapped. And we've also got this amazing cognitive toolkit that we can deploy to stop ourselves changing. So we might see facts, but we can choose to deny, we can obfuscate, we can hide, we can uh, have cognitive distance or a crazier, just, you know, desperation. We've got so many ways of avoiding change. But one of, so I'd be fascinated in your perspective on how do we make a better future, which is a crazily big question. But it seems really interesting because there's lots of debates in all sorts of you know all sorts of social justice movements, all sorts of different campaigns, advocacy worlds about you know which levers to pull, you know individual change, institutional change, you know what's most productive, what's the most effective, how can we make things happen? And you seem almost a sort of unique person who seems to have you know worked on almost every level right so you you talked about the dollar vote and the power of boycotting and making individual changes for yourself and your family and that has a knock-on impact in on institutions and corporations and that world which you work in as a consultant too then there's the political world and you've even stood for office yourself building some of this thinking into your platforms i'd love to know a little bit more about how that played out what you think we can do in engaging directly in politics not just voting but standing for office and lobbying and driving policy. But you've also, you know, familiarity with even at the international level as well through your 
you know, foreign relations and international relations work too. And, you know, I've done some amateur thought experiments, even at that level of saying, look, imagine the UN move from a universal declaration of human rights to a universal declaration of sentient rights, you know, and had that policy ripple through at a global level. What could, what could that look like as a crazy thought experiment? Um, so given all of those levels and this sort of problem we have, which I think is not really one of facts and evidence, it is more one of change in human psychology and social norms. Yeah, how can we make a better world? I'm expecting you to have the perfect answer. <laughs> yes, well, I'm a strategist, so of course I have an answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a, probably a nice yeah, PowerPoint think... deck as well. <laughs> no, I think that... Um... There, there are a couple of things. I, I think that the problem is so ingrained into our culture and it's coming at different um, directions. There's so many different layers to this um, that you have to have different tools. There are different tools for different jobs, right? And so when you look at the political side of thing, realistically, what are you going to do um, to do better for animals and for ourselves? And I think realistically speaking, they're not going to want to hear the argument about animal rights. I don't think I think that's going to fall upon deaf ears. And so let's not make it because, like you said, there are some very real reasons that are human centric to stop what we're doing to animals. Yeah. Let's focus on those things about the environmental health and, and about people's health. And so, for instance, in America, we have um, huge government subsidies towards farms and dairy farms and things like that. So why don't we perhaps move that towards plant based products um and why don't we and again it's not even and when you really look at the the food industry in america it is not just the animals that are suffering often the farmers suffer as well they're caught in this huge machine as well like they're also stuck so when you look at it from a view of not being morally righteous but being effective like I want to be effective and um, I have a good friend um, Carol Barnett who they call uh, Mrs. Veggie and her husband's Dr. Veggie and they've been vegan for years and years and they run um, Rochester's Medical Institute where they help people become whole-based plant-based and you know help with their heart disease and their diabetes and their high blood pressure and and really you can see like within just a matter of a few weeks when people stop poisoning themselves with animal products and processed foods their bodies start to heal themselves and they do a lot better but one thing that she says though um and she's fantastic because being a, a diehard vegan she is very compassionate and again i think as vegans we forget our compassion too because we get yeah. very incised <laughs> Yeah. We get very incised and, you know, almost combative sometimes, depending on who we're speaking to about these issues. Um, and she, you can understand it because the issue is so serious, egregious and obviously horrific, right? So it's difficult. It is. It is. Um, right. No, like, I, I get it. I, I totally get it. Um, but she's really good at maintaining her compassion. And she always says that um, the animals don't care why you're vegan. They, they just care that you are. So whatever brings you to it. And so, you know, I, I really took that to heart because for some people, some people are going to be really touched about the animal side of things and animal cruelty and compassion. And some people 
just will never, ever care. Some people will be vegan because of their health issues and, you know, they have diabetes and they want to get off their medication or, or whatever the case may be. Some people, it will be purely for the environment, um, you know, and like me, but I really feel like once you start, you'll probably pick up those other reasons too. The more that you get into it, you'll you'll pick up the other reasons. And it's a whole lot to wrap your head around. And so I think with a problem that spans across so many different parts of our society, we really do have to have different tools. So we do need to have people who are going to lobby for legislation that says, hey, you know, like there's a big thing called the ag gag. Have you heard of it? So in America, um, you're not allowed to see what is happening in these factory farms. And that is insane. Like it's supposed to be the land of the free, but you can't know what's happening to yeah. your food. Don't people want to know How where their food is that came possible? from? Yeah. How is that possible? But so those are the types of laws. There are very specific laws that have been in place to enforce the system. So, you know, getting into politics and legislation to combat that. And, and again, not just voting for someone who's like, oh, yes, I, I support the environment because you're a liar if you say that you support the environment and you don't have conversations about the food industry and our choices that we're making. Like, it's impossible. You can't. And that's why when I ran, you cannot genuinely say that you are for sustainability, that you are for the environment and that you want to do something that's going to help stop global warming without also looking towards veganism or how to significantly reduce our animal consumption yeah there's such a taboo against challenging animal agriculture in the mainstream environmental movement and you can see it cracking here and there you know every time the ipcc report comes out and talks about animal agriculture and even in public media you can see cracks appearing here and there but it's so powerful you know people love to talk about energy and electrification and food waste and plastic straws and so on but just for some reason it's like a no-goer it's a massive social taboo and we we have to break it down and i liked what you said earlier on about the different paths because in a way it feels like your own personal path to veganism and animal advocacy was through you know environment and health at first but it's so much easier to challenge a practice once you're no longer doing it if you're consuming animals every day it's very hard to think about the ethical issues i mean that's partly why my journey too was so long but if you've you know environmental or health or some other reason has meant you've moved away from that system it just becomes easier to think more clearly about the ethical implications as well maybe it frees people up to then bring their ethics in line too but it's hard to do that when you're it's still a habit you know and i think that so for me the way that that looks is that um you know, the initial reason was, again, because of the dollar vote and the environment and just to stop participating, right? But the more that I learned, and, and so if if you're vegan for the environment, that's when I guess you really you can be flexitarian. And it's like, yeah, like 95% of my diet is vegan, but I'll have that steak or this seafood every once in a while. When you are vegan because of your ethics and compassion towards animals, you will never have another bite of animal products ever again. And you literally just can't do it. Um, I, I, again, and I think it probably takes a while. I mean, there was some ups and downs early in my journey. Um, 
Yeah, so at one point I thought it was okay to, I felt okay with eating chickens that came from this lady's backyard because they were free, clearly free range, organic, well cared for, she took good care of them, they were loved. And, you know, when I originally dismissed eggs, it was because I saw what they were doing to the male chickens and how they're keeping them. And, you know, the industrial farming setting was disgusting. But then it's like, but, you know, they lay the eggs anyway. Is it really hurting them if they're free range and like well-loved? And and part of that's probably because I missed eating eggs. I grew up eating eggs my whole life. Um, but then one day she was talking about how they were pecking at their own eggs. And I was like, why would they do that? And I actually did more research into it and learned how atrociously they've been bred and how I, I now feel like there just isn't any ethical way to consume eggs or chicken. And, and it's the same with dairy for a while. It is, um, you know, I think there was a couple of years where we're like, could we ethically source cheese and, and eggs, you know, because again, my main motivation was about the environment. So if there's a farm that is taking really good care of the farm and the animals, you know, is that okay? And for our family, once we learned more about the, and I think, again, it's like this compassionate lens of like the sentient animal um, was not made and born uh, to exist for me to benefit because I just want to eat something. That doesn't make sense to me, you know, and it just took a, a minute to think about it, um, you know, and again, like there is this beautiful um, photographer and like, I think she was also on our hen house and um, like animals are alive and they have life too. And even if we could and going back to the bible when it says you have dominion over the animals in the land right so does dominion mean that you should be horrific to them and be cruel i mean surely that that's more stewardship we should like yeah, surely yeah. that would mean stewardship like i kind of like my husband and i kind of joke about like jesus coming down and like you did what <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there would be so many things so many things yeah right but no i think that um genuinely though appreciating life and I, I think for me personally living my life in a way where I try to do no harm to anyone right um it just feels good yeah it just it feels easy I'm, I'm I'm able to be happier and when I go to bed at night I sleep well and in the morning I work hard to make a difference and then like I know that I've I've I'm doing something. I'm not just idly sitting by and, and letting it go. I'm genuinely doing my best to make a difference. And I don't, I mean, it's little things like, you know, killing um, a moth that's in my house. Like if I can let it out, I'll let it out. But then we had like this huge infestation and my daughter wouldn't go to sleep and they scared the crap out of her. So we put up a fly tape one time, right? So it's like, like you do try to do your best or like the mice that kept coming into um, ruining our food in the basement. You know, we tried to plug all of the holes and do different things. And it's like, are you vegan if you kill the mice that are in your house? You know, like, where do you draw the line? I was talking to another guy um, and 
I have a neighborhood cat, actually. It's not my cat. I don't even know whose cat it is, but he's always in my yard and he's hunting mice. And considering that the mice often come into my basement, I'm okay with that. That's nature, right? And he's like, is that vegan if you get a cat that specifically to hunt mice? And I was like, it's not my cat. Mm. <laughs> I was like, it's, I appreciate yeah. the cat is, is doing that, but it's not my cat. And again, it's like, how far do you um, apply, you know, human concepts, right, to the animal kingdom? Because are you going to stop hunting, natural hunting of prey and predator or, you know, so it's like, where do you draw the line? And honestly, I think that um, it's one of those places I think people should be lifelong learners. And I would hate to be the same person 10 years from now that I am today. I would love to continue to experience the world and broaden my understanding and my perspective of how I fit into it. Yeah, I love that perspective. And I think I think you're right. I think, you know, there probably isn't a perfect answer to some of these questions. We shouldn't kid ourselves. We've reached the end of some perfect ethics. There's still going to be difficult questions and maybe completely unresolvable uh, questions that we need to face up to. I think that mindset of just keep learning and be open-minded and trying to do better is important. And, and I'd echo what you said earlier on. In a way, I think we should use whatever uh, entryway we can to this space, you know, environmental, human health, you know, various other factors. But I think for a number of reasons that you've laid out, we, the ethics does need to be part of it. It might not be the first thing we introduce people to, but at some point it's got to be played through because the essence of it is, as you said, is taking the perspective of, you know, the other, the, the victims in this situation. And really that does drive a degree of clarity of ethics. It doesn't necessarily always tell us the right answer and there may not be a perfect answer, but at least taking that starts for me is, is almost definitionally central to ethics. I mean, that's what morality is about. It's having a concern for others and their perspective. Um, so as long as we have, I think that stance and that aspiration to compassion, we've got at least a better chance of making a better world, even if it's still going to be tough. Right. And I also think there's a very practical um, element to this where people have to learn how to make healthy vegan meals. And, and that's like why I do the Twisted Spoon. But seriously, though, you know, we were up and down for the first few years because we really wanted to be vegan. But, you know, we were all over the place in terms of our diet. And so we go through like periods of where we weren't feeling great. We didn't have the energy. I'm like, okay, clearly we're not doing it right. So like we'd eat fish and eggs or something for a little bit. And I do more research because where we were, we were in a small village in England and the nearest store that was like a whole food store that sold anything relevant to like veganism, like tofu curls, soy curls, or things like that, you know, was the size of like a small room <laughs> and it it didn't have a huge amount available and so a the lot choices of just weren't the, there for you or weren't viable for um, you yeah. like it, it just it just wasn't and um it took it took quite a while it wasn't until we kind of landed on a whole food plant-based diet that uh we really got into a stride and we're like yep yeah, this is it and um really and again it's like I almost had to become a nutritionist and luckily like an academic person. And so I was happy to read the studies and, and do the work, but really, and you shouldn't have to understand like 
how you get the essential amino acids by combining your legumes and your seeds and nuts and, and things, you know, like you shouldn't have to, to know those things. And then, you know, people aren't taught, like you're not taught any of that. You're just taught like a meat and two veg is kind of a typical thing. And so when you take the meat out and you replace it with like corn or some other meat amalgam, um, it's really not the best. It's like super, super processed foods, which processed foods aren't great for you. Sorry, corn. I don't mean that people shouldn't have your food. I, I think there's a place for it, right? Like I enjoy my Impossible Burger or well, actually I eat Beyond Burgers from time to time. But as a main point of food, like having it, like you can't simply, and this is what I did, you know, completely just replace one for one everything that was meat or dairy I replaced with fake meat and fake dairy. Yeah, you just right? instead of replacing it. Uh, yeah, and instead of instead of replacing it with real food, you know, I wasn't. I didn't really. It took a long time before I added in legumes and nuts and seeds and actual food to my diet. And when I did that, then it was fine. But you know, and it was really upsetting too because I I had two very young children that I was trying to feed and I like we have to get this right. I went to a nutritionist and she was like, "Well, can't you eat a little bit of meat?" And so it was, you know, so you know, I was very determined and I still struggled and I think that, you know, it is really difficult to make a choice of compassion when your personal health is failing and everyone that you know and everything in society is telling you it's fine to eat meat oh for goodness sakes you've been doing it your whole life you know um and you know you're not feeling well like like I just knew I wasn't doing it well it's not that it's not sustainable I just personally hadn't discovered how to do it and so I think that I I'm probably not the only person in that boat where even if you have of the motivation to become vegan actually and also I was very fortunate because um you know my husband makes enough money so I can work part-time and so I had a lot of time to do this research and I had a lot of time to practice in the kitchen and you know to make mistakes and things and it, sometimes it took hours like to do some of the new recipes took hours and hours and some of the cookbooks to source some of these magic ingredients uh it was just insane right yeah. um not everybody but else practically that speaking yeah. Yeah, but but practically speaking, if someone wants to become a vegan, they need to know how to make vegan food or at least source it from somewhere. And luckily, there are so many products now and it's really not the same struggle, but it is something that we have to be mindful of. So it's not just the motivation to make this change. And everyone knows that any change is difficult, but it's how do you make it a sustainable change? How do you genuinely? And I think for some people, it's not going to be cold turkey. And I think like when you go from the ethics, compassion kind of thing, where you like you look at a piece of cheese and you see, you know, pus and blood and pain and yeah. death, like you, you yeah. can't eat that, but you need to eat something, right? Yeah. So for some people, it's going to be that step down, like, okay, I can cut out, I, I can easily cut out beef, I can cut out chicken, I can cut out fish. Then it's like, okay, I can cut out eggs. And because some people float, right? Like they just eat like, they eat eggs and um, beans and like rice, right? And until they figure out how to get rid of that too. Um, and usually cheese is the last to go, I hear. Yeah. And a lot, I think a lot of people, you know, particularly vegans on Twitter, and, I, you know, I fall into this category sometimes too, 
we act and we talk as if winning the argument is enough. And it, and it just isn't. You know, in very practical, descriptive terms, as you've said, at every level, individuals need to have viable, acceptable choices, whether that's fast, cheap, easy, socially acceptable choices, so that they can take a better choice. And farmers need to have better choices. You know, how am I going to feed my family? And what livelihood am I going to have? And how am I going to run a business? They need a better choice. And even institutions, different policy levels, you know, you need to actually have something practical and realistic that people can turn to just theoretically winning the argument, however strong that argument is, just isn't enough. And I'm very aware I've taken more of your time than I asked for too, but I wondered if I could squeeze in one last question in this section. Yeah, of course. What, what, what was it like taking this agenda into the political arena when you stood for office? Because that's a bold step that, again, not many people take. And I'd love to see more people. I want to say it was try. a little disappointing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was interesting. I, I got comments um, of, you ran a very unique campaign. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and I think that really, but one of the things that comes through, and it's really interesting, is that um, there is such a huge intersection between veganism and um, sustainability and social justice that people don't often see. And when you start talking about one thing and it leads to another and another, and um, I, I love getting people into the conversation. I think that's the whole point because you're not going to change people's minds if they're not part of the conversation. And one of the things that I did was I opened up a um, an outdoor kitchen at a farmer's market where I just fed people and it was free. I just would go out on a Saturday or Sunday and I would cook for people. And um, I also had like the big sign that said vegan food and when they come over and I was also running for office and we just have like these conversations, but most people are just so put off by the term vegan. And in fact, there was this, there's this article about people prefer meatless or, you know, plant-based versus vegan. Like vegan is really abrasive to people for some reason. Like they, you know, it's like, ah, vegan. And like, it's like it's a challenge dry, to this. Or it's yeah. going to be, it's, you know, it's, a lot of things people don't like vegan but um you know so many people actively sneered and turned their nose up at the the mere idea um but also people can't not eat free food it's this hilarious <laughs> dynamic you might, have, of you might have found the answer here yeah <laughs> like people cannot not eat free food and so i mean like this one lady in particular and i've, I've had several people but this one lady in particular she was like um what are you making like like seriously like just like approach the booth like what are you making and I was like and this is not her voice at all I don't know why I always default to like a California girl but she's like what are you making and I was like oh um I'm making chili she goes what kind of chili I was like oh it's vegan chili and everyone when you put peppers and garlic and onions into a pot and you start cooking it it just draws the crowds and like, oh my gosh, that smells amazing. I'm like, guys, I haven't even started yet. You like, you love, you do like whole foods. You do. You just don't cook it at home and you don't know because I haven't even put anything in it yet. And she's like, I don't like chili. And I was like, okay. 
right she's like well I was like well what do you like she goes you know like hostess cookie like hostess cakes and like she's listed a whole bunch of junk food I was like okay and I was like well would you like to try the chili she's like what's in it and then I was like well we have uh, three different types of beans it's a vegan chili we have red lentils and tomatoes and when I cook I always like bring all of the things out and I lay them on that table next to me so you see the whole food you see the dried beans you see the dried lentils you see the tomatoes like you see everything that I've put into this meal right and she just was like ah I was like would you like to try it and she goes yeah I guess and so I like I don't know why people can't say no she already said she doesn't like chili she already was like super against the vegan idea tough customer she was like she was like yes I'll try it (laughs) I was like okay so she goes and she goes to try it. And um, I also had toppers. I had like fresh cilantro and red onions and fresh corn that I wasn't cooked, just cut it off the cob and things. And I was like, would you like any of the toppers? And she's like, what's that? I was like, it's cilantro. She's like, I've never had that before. I was like, don't try it today. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> not much, today. Like, too much. Pe- people either love it or hate it. I'm like, don't ruin my chili with it if it's, if it's not for you, right? I was like, not today. And so she tries it and like, she takes it, she takes it away. I give her like this little cup and she takes it away. And like, again, I just knew it was going to go straight in the trash. She comes back with her husband and she was like, this is delicious. Like what's in it again? And we then had, like, it went from like her being completely defensive and just telling me all the reasons why she was going to hate this chili. And I, she doesn't know why I'm out here to, this was actually really good. What is in this and how did you make it? And actually my doctor said that I should uh, cut down on my meat and dairy intake. And I'm really interested now. And it was a completely, completely different conversation from her trying it to like, because again, she sat there for like 15 minutes, like giving me evil eye <laughs> and telling me all the reasons why it was bad. And then she came back. But then then her husband's like, it's hot. I want to go. And she's like, well, you go ahead. And like she sent her husband along and continued the conversation with me. And I'm thinking this is exactly what it's all about. It's about introducing people and coming to their levels. And, you know, if you, she would have had a pamphlet or any, there was no amount of conversation that would have had her consider it. And the number of people that said, if the food tasted like this, I would be vegan or I could eat this or, or even just, I made, um, glam chowder one time and so you see like carrots celery mushrooms cashews um and some and seaweed nori uh, and everyone's like what are you making so like yeah you see like potatoes like like I don't see how all of these ingredients fit together and then it's like oh we'll look in the pot and they're like oh my gosh this is like magic and you just transformed this into like this delicious clam chowder like dish and you know these connections that people are are, are making and you really have to help them along sometimes yeah, like yeah. they're not well, going to form themselves I think you found the key the magic secret to the whole thing it's just free vegan food that's that's the answer that can unlock this whole problem so <laughs> Well, that's been, it's been an absolutely inspirational conversation. Thank you so much for talking me through your philosophical journey and that focus on kindness and compassion, and, but being pragmatic and open-minded and pulling on all the different levers and trying to be compassionate even to the people that piss us off and that we're trying to persuade. Um, so, yeah, yeah, thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add to the conversation? Um, and also, how can people follow you, visit your website, learn more about your work? Oh yeah, for sure. So I have um, latwistedspoon.com um, or you can search Pearl Monique Colbrunt that comes up. Not many Pearl Monique Colbrunts in the yeah. world as far as I know. Um, 
but I, I like to do a couple of different things. I'm starting to do grocery store tours locally, but really um, La Twisted Spoon is about teaching people how to cook vegan food. And it's not necessarily about specific recipes because there's, you can Google vegan and then anything and get a recipe these days. It's about really understanding what the vegan ingredients are. How do you use nooch? When do you choose an egg replacer versus applesauce? You know, you can't make an applesauce omelet, right? <laughs> It's yeah, not going to yeah. work. But if you want to replace your egg in baking, it's a perfectly good substitution. So how do you work with vegan ingredients and, and make it work? Because I think another big part of it is that um, your own personal tastes in the kitchen. And, you know, it has to be food that you like to eat as well, not just like vegan food. So now it's spanning so many different cuisines and it's it's wonderful. I just got a the Korean vegan cookbook. I'm really excited to start trying some of those recipes. But honestly, like if you're used to eating like Southern American food and you want your biscuits and gravy and, you know, again, when I started about 10 years ago, there were a lot of like, Asian recipes because it was a lot and Indian recipes because it naturally there were a lot of vegetarian recipes so then going to that extra step of being vegan was a lot easier for those cuisines you're not trying to manufacture fake sausages and cheeseburgers and like the typical American fare was a lot more difficult I think to transition to uh, for a vegan diet but again you know if you're not someone who who wants to eat stir fry every day uh, you, you have to find food that you're going to like so I try to teach people about how to work with vegan ingredients and how to make it your own yeah, fascinating. Thank you. Well, I'll include the links in the show notes so people can click through. But I love the idea of, yeah, getting to the sort of deeper principles of vegan food and ideas like the grocery tours as well to really help. It's not just the recipe list, right? You actually need to know how it works and develop those skills too. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, thank awesome. you again. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you again so much. It's been a real pleasure. Please stay in touch. And um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll let you know when we, we publish this. I'd love to see what people think of the conversation. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me and I will continue to follow you on Twitter. Excellent. I will see you there. Take care, pal. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?